Today we'll be reading Psalm 119, verse 105. Again, that is Psalm 119, verse 105. And it reads, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thank you, Jordan, for reading our scripture. You recall last week we began looking at some of the ABCs of leadership, and so tonight I want to pick up with that theme. We were talking about the ABCs of leadership. And so in our study tonight, I just want to call attention to several more of the characteristics that make up leadership in the house of God. I believe that the scriptures are all sufficient. Everything that we need to know pertaining to life and godliness, God has given unto us. So when it comes to leaders in God's church, we know exactly what kind of leader we're looking for. God has designated His man, or collectively, His men that function in this capacity. Last week in our study, we began with the letter A, which, as we said, stood for ability. We looked at the letter B, which signified bravery. C for conviction. D for delegate. E for encourage. F for faithful. G for godly. And H for holy. Tonight I want to pick up, if I could for just a moment or two, with the letter I. And the letter I signifies, in my mind, influence. Godly elders must be influential, godly leaders. As a matter of fact, all of us in the body of Christ ought to, ought to live in such a way so that we exert our influence in the world in which we live. You recall in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said that we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That encompasses every Christian. We're all to be salt, that is a leavening agent for good, we're all to be light, that is, a light shining forth in a darkened world. John said in 1 John chapter 5 that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, or lies in darkness. And Jesus said men love darkness rather than light. So our goal is to be light bearers in a lost and dying world. You recall Paul when he wrote to Timothy, and Timothy was his own son in the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 12, Paul, in writing to the young evangelist, said, Let no one despise your youth. He said, But be an example of the believers in word, and then he said, In conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. I think what Paul was saying to Timothy was, Timothy, you show the world what it means to be a New Testament Christian. Wouldn't it be great if every single Christian, every child of God, lived in such a way so that he or she was influential for the cause of Christ, so that people could see in us Christ, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 at verse 20. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 1, he said, Be followers of me, even as I also follow Christ. In other words, you imitate my behavior insofar as I imitate the behavior of Jesus. Don't you think every leader in the Lord's church ought to conduct himself in such a way so that people want to follow his lead? When I was growing up in Chattanooga, 
A couple of my best friends lived two doors up from me, and their father was an elder. And in my mind today, my two buddies, mom and dad, exemplified everything about New Testament Christianity. The way they lived, the way they talked, the way they acted, everything about them said to me, these people are genuine. They are New Testament Christians. I'm not sure I ever had the opportunity to adequately convey, matter of fact, I know I didn't, never had the opportunity to really express to them what tremendous examples they were to me. And they have since gone into eternity. But they left a mark upon my life that I will be forever grateful for. And so all of us as Christians, we need, we need to understand that no man is an island unto himself. And people are watching us and they're listening to what we say. And they observe us in public. And many times they take note of how we act and sometimes how we react. When Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5 to Christians who were facing a siege of persecution, he identified himself as an elder in the Lord's church. And he encouraged those who were functioning in this capacity to be an example to the flock. I don't believe that there is a higher office in the land than to be a leader in the Lord's church. And so individuals who function in this capacity, they do so because they want to ultimately serve the Lord. They understand that it is a work. Their intent, their goal is to be an influence for the cause of Christ. Not just among a community of believers, but in the community in which they live. One of the qualifications of an elder, according to Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, is that an elder is to have a good report from those without. That is, those, with, those who are on the outside of the body of Christ. What's the reputation in the community? So it says something about how we carry ourselves, our conduct in the body of Christ. And so leaders in the church, and all of us to some extent, we are a leader, whether we realize it or not. We lead in the home. We lead on our jobs. We are leaders in our schools, etc. But specifically, we need leaders in the Lord's church, don't we? We need godly leaders, holy leaders. So I think about the influence that they exert. And no doubt, many of you have been influenced by godly elders. You have observed their character, you've listened to them, they have counseled you in the past. I remember having the opportunity to attend a leadership class a couple of years ago. Keith Mosier was teaching the class. And so as he began the class, he began by talking about, in his mind, he said, I want to tell you about the finest elder I've ever known. So I was interested to hear about this individual. You'll never know who he cited. A man that all of you or some of you know. A brother by the name of Nesby Sharp. Brother Mosier had become acquainted with Nesby Sharp 
going back to Wooddale. And he talked about Brother Sharp and his, attentiveness, his attentiveness to the flock, to the church. He said he remembered on one occasion Brother Sharp coming into Brother Bradley's office. Brother Bradley was a preacher at Wooddale at that time. And so they asked Brother Sharp to go to lunch with them. And Brother Sharp said, oh, I'd love to, but I don't have time. He said, I've got a list of people that missed services yesterday, and they need to be contacted. Now, that's using your influence for the cause of Christ. That's being a leader in the spiritual realm, isn't it? And so, to think about the influence that a leader exerts, the potential influence that he can exert in the kingdom of God. There's another letter that I want to cite tonight, the letter J. And there may be a number of terms that would come to mind as you think about the letter J, but the word that comes to my mind is the word joyful. Christians, above all people, ought to be people of joy, shouldn't they? When Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, and Paul was writing from a Roman prison cell, the time was about A.D. 61 or 62. Philippians is one of four prison epistles. And so over and over again, Paul talks about the joy that we can find in the Lord. And so you try to picture in your mind, here is the Apostle Paul chained to a Roman guard, and they're rotating these guards every four to six hours, 24-7. And Paul is sitting chained to a Roman guard. He's writing to the saints in Philippi, and here's what he said. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How many of us would have written to friends, family members, possibly members of the body of Christ from a prison cell because of persecution, and that, of course, would result from our faith in Christ, and in writing to our brothers and sisters in Christ or friends or family members, we encourage them to rejoice in the Lord. How many of us would talk about how difficult it was, how trying the circumstances, how heartbroken we are? If you want to get into the mindset of Paul and you think about the various adversities he faced in life, and listen, when Paul wrote to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, he said, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. When Paul wrote about persecution... He knew what he was talking about, didn't he? When Paul wrote about joy, he knew what he was talking about. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas had been imprisoned because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you recall they had been beaten with rods. Their feet had been fastened in stocks. And the Bible says at midnight, what were they doing? They were praying. Listen to him. Here's what Luke said, and singing praises to God. Now you tell me what an attitude. Don't you think that Paul had a joyful disposition when it came to life? Sometimes we look at life from a negative vantage point. And look, I get it. There are a lot of things that are wrong in this world. There are a lot of things that if I had the opportunity, if I had the ability, I would change them. And sometimes we fight for change. We preach and teach in an effort to affect change. 
But sometimes we have a sour disposition. We're soured on life. And sometimes as Christians, we manifest that same disposition. And so you think about people in the world observing those of us who are in Christ. Don't you think that if anyone ought to have joy in their hearts, if anybody ought to have a little bit of a kick in their step, it ought to be a child of God? That we ought to be joyful? That we ought to look at the glass as half full rather than half empty? It's all about perspective. So here's Paul. He's in a Roman prison. And so in Philippians chapter 4, here's what he said. I have learned in whatever state I'm in, therein to be content. Paul did not let the outward circumstances of life affect his joyful disposition. Joy, in many respects, is an inside job, isn't it? It's inside out. Now, think about a leader in the Lord's church. Don't you want to have leaders that are joyful, that are happy, that are glad to be in the presence of God, they're glad to be among the people of God? They love people, they love life, they love reaching out to those who are lost and dying in sin, trying to bring them in. When Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, he said, He that would love life and see good days. Do you love life? I think that there are a lot of things about life that make it attractive. Are there things that I would like to see changed, as I said a moment ago? Absolutely. But I still love life. I love every day. And you know what? As you get older in life, you come to appreciate time because you realize it's getting away so fast. That's why the psalmist said, Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. So a joyful disposition, somebody who is a leader that is influential and joyful. Another letter, the letter K. The letter K stands for knowledgeable. Leaders have to be knowledgeable when it comes to the faith. Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and about verse 7 that a leader in the Lord's church is not to be a novice. In other words, he's not to be a new convert. But rather, a leader in the Lord's church is a seasoned veteran. Got some experience. Experience in life, experience with the Bible. He knows, he knows what the Bible teaches. And there's a sense of conviction undergirding that. Paul said, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and the counsel that comes from opening the Scriptures. There are a lot of people in our world today that sadly do not respect this book. Because if they did, they would open its contents. And they would read and study with the intent of taking these truths and making application in their own lives. This book right here can literally change the face of a nation. It can change the hearts and lives of young and old people. I've seen it happen. You've seen it happen. And so to understand that this book is the key to life, 
When I think about a leader, I think about the psalmist of old who said, my heart stands in awe of your word in Psalm 119, 161. Here is, a, here is a leader who respects God's word, who says, whatever God says, that's what we're going to do. Do you remember in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul stood before the elders of the church of Ephesus while he was in Miletus? He said, look, I shun not to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And then he told those elders, he said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Listen to him. To feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Paul realized that the church, in order to be what it ought to be in the eyes of God, must grow. And the only way it can grow is to be fed a healthy diet, and that diet comes from the Word of God. Truth and nothing but the truth. Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not in Proverbs 23, 23. In Acts 20, verse 32, as Paul closed out his words of encouragement to the elders of the church of Ephesus, he said, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able, listen to Him, to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified in Christ Jesus. So when you step back and you think about the power of the gospel, did Paul believe in the power of the gospel? Yes, he did. When he wrote to the saints in Rome, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone he believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so in writing to the church, or rather, in speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. He could say to them, look, there's power in the Word of God. God's Word is twofold. Number one, it has the power to evangelize, to change the hearts and lives of people, if it falls on honest and good hearts. Number two, it has the ability to edify, to build up. In Acts 20, verse 32, when he said, and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. That word able is the same word as power in Romans 1.16. All he's saying is God's word has the ability, the power, to build you up, to make you what you ought to be in the eyes of God. And so, I'm grateful for elders, for leaders in the church, who want what God wants, and that is, they want sound doctrine. They want faithful preaching and teaching. They want somebody to preach the word. They want in the classrooms of thus saith the Lord. They take what Paul said and they put it into practice. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Paul asks the question, what does the scripture say? That's all that matters, isn't it? Whatever the, whatever the controversy when it comes to matters of faith and practice, really it all goes back to that question, what does the scripture say? Whatever the scripture says, that settles it, doesn't it? You remember what Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as what? as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4, verse 11. So, leaders in the Lord's church, they're not novices, they're not new to the faith, but rather they are seasoned, they're grounded in the Word. They have spent their life studying, meditating on the truth of God, preparing themselves to step out and lead. And everything that they say, everything that they do, is based on Scripture. A lot to be said for somebody who's a student of the Word. You know, one of the things that strikes me about Christianity 
We can never grow complacent in our study, in our learning. We can continue learning. It, really, it is a lifelong quest to know more, isn't it? I would encourage you every single day, spend time in this book and try to learn. Spend time saturating your mind with the precepts of God. It'll bless your life like none other. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? When he talked about the wise man who built his house on the rock, he said the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and he said it fell not. Why? Because it was founded upon the rock. He likened that person to somebody who hears the word of God and does it. So we want to make sure that our lives are stable, steadfast, and secure. And they can be that way if we will simply be knowledgeable in the word of God. And then the letter L. The letter L stands for loving. Jesus talked about the importance of love. All of us as Christians ought to understand that love is the badge of discipleship, isn't it? In John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now sometimes we might ask the question, was loving one another something new to those of Jewish origin? The answer is no, it wasn't new. The newness of the command had to do with the depth of love that they were to demonstrate to one another. And so Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so, every child of God, those of us who belong to the body of Christ, we ought to be people who genuinely love one another. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are to love the brotherhood. That, it, that would be we love the church universally, don't we? But locally, we're supposed to love each other. In 1 John 4, Jesus, or rather John, in the long ago, said, God is love. He went on to say, Beloved, if God so love us, we also ought to love one another. Now think about that for a minute. God has loved us, and John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. So that has to do with our love for God. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. But Jesus said, a second commandment likened to it is this, we're to love our neighbors ourselves. So we have love for one another. Well, what about a leader? Leaders have to love people. First, they have to love God. They have to love God to the point that He is first in their lives. Jesus said we're to seek first the kingdom of God in His righteousness in Matthew 6, 33. So we love Him with, with our heart, soul, and mind. We put Him first in our lives, and then we carry it a step further. We love our neighbors, ourselves. We love one another. Leaders have to love people, don't they? One of the qualifications of a leader, based on what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is that he is to be given to hospitality. In other words, he is to be a people person. You know, there are some people in our world today, if you begin to talk to them and get to know them, over a period of time, it becomes evident they really don't like people. You know anybody like that? Do you know anybody that will tell you right up front, I don't like people. I don't want to be around people. There are some folks like that. But when it comes to 
leaders in the Lord's church, they love people. And they love the souls of people because behind every set of eyes is an eternal soul. And all of us one day are going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. Godly, faithful leaders want to make sure that those that they are overseeing are living in such a way so that one day they'll be in heaven. That's our goal. So everything that, they, everything that a leader does is motivated by love. Love for God and love for the human soul. Now there's a lot of application in the realm of just those of us who belong to the body of Christ. Because in the world, what do you have? Hatred, jealousies, backbiting, underminings, fighting, quarreling. And if people in the world see that among Christians, then why would they want to be a Christian? Well, the fact of the matter is they're not going to want to be a Christian. So elders, leaders, set the tempo. They love the Lord. They love the flock. And then the final letter for tonight, the letter M, which signifies meekness. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, in Matthew chapter 5. There are a lot of people in our world today, they equate meekness with weakness. You talk to the average person on the street and you talk about somebody being meek. You know what they'll tell you? Oh, he or she is weak. Well, a meek person is not weak. A meek person does not lack a backbone, a spine, but rather they're strong. The word meekness means strength under control. And the idea is, the picture is that of a wild stallion that has been broken or harnessed. Well, isn't it the case that when we become children of God, that that worldly spirit is being broken? We are dying to the love and the practice of sin. We come forth as a new creation in Christ. And we're striving to yield our lives to the Lord. He's now in control. So what about in how we deal with people? Well, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul said, Brethren, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, that is somebody who is overtaken in a fault, in a spirit of meekness or gentleness considering yourself, lest you're also tempted. And the idea is that you sit down with somebody and in a very patient, loving way, try to win them back to the Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about individuals who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And so he identifies the servant of the Lord. And he said the servant of the Lord is apt to teach... He is patient, he's long-suffering, he's meek. Strength under control. I had a brother tell me on one occasion, a brother that had left the Lord, become unfaithful, matter of fact, unfaithful for years. 
And he said, when he began to think about trying to get himself straightened out, and as he began to think about that restoration process, he reached out to some people in the body of Christ. And he said, one brother in particular, a preacher, a teacher, wrote back to him or emailed him and said, look, you will always be my brother. And he said, you know what? He said, the way people treated me had a lot to do with me coming back. And so, as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the goal is to win the soul. He said, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel or strive, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God, he said, perhaps will grant them repentance that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses. Now, what's the goal in the restoration process or in reaching out to people who are lost and dying in sin? We're trying to get that light to go off, aren't we? Sometimes folks have been living in sin so long, their lives are filled with so much darkness. It takes time for the Word to resonate. And that light goes off like the prodigal son. And the Bible says he came to himself. And so in coming to himself, Jesus in that narrative in Luke 15 said, that younger son said, I'll arise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And what did he do? He went home and found forgiveness through repentance. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak tonight. I feel like a guest speaker. And so I appreciate the opportunity to continue our study. Next week, the Lord willing, we will pick up with the letter N on Sunday evening. It might be the case that you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You believe Jesus is the Son of God, but you've never repented of your sins, as Peter announced in Acts 2. You've never confessed before others you believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You've never been immersed in water so that all your sins can be washed away. Look, you have that opportunity right now. The water is ready. We're here. We're in the presence of God. I can think of no better time for you to say, I've had enough of the world. I want to live for God. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess, confess His name before others, and are baptized into Christ, God will put you in His family. Acts 2.47 if you'll be faithful till death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, your life is not what it ought to be, and you know that you need to come home, and we could pray with you and for you. Let us do that with you tonight as we stand and sing.